0: I want to say that for every single territory that we open really it's it's always going to be based on how experienced the first person you have is on that territory you have to spend a, a lot of money in hiring the first right person that's done before and that will put you in front of the right people
1: Corner, the podcast that helps you open and thrive in foreign markets. This is Tiff here speaking, and in this episode, I am welcoming Aleta Nujem, Director of Sales Development at Algolia. Algolia has now expanded in a lot of different countries scattered around EMEA, APAC, and the US. A key element of this success is the sales development team led by Aleta which is responsible for generating pipelines internationally. And she will share how they set up the right team and structure for each country they've opened so far and her management practices to optimize the performance of her sales development team internationally. Hi, Aleta. So happy to have you here at International Corner. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you as well. Perhaps before going into today's matter, could you start by introducing yourself? Maybe Algolia and your role there.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm Aleta. I'm uh, I'm part Dutch, part Lebanese, uh, and grew up in France. So yeah. Already very international, so this podcast was a very good fit. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've spent the last few, what, I want to say 10 years, 12 years in sales, uh, and the last eight years in uh, tech, uh, tech sales. So I started off selling very different, different things, from legal services to uh, golf classes to uh, recruitment, and then kind of randomly landed in tech sales and found my passion there for sales development. Uh, and uh, so I've been with Algolia for the last four and a half years. Uh, Algolia, uh, what we sell is an API solution to allow our customers to develop powerful search and discovery experiences. So basically, we allow customers such as uh, Lacoste, Galerie Lafayette, uh, Boots, uh, and a, a lot of other uh, large e-commerce companies and other, uh, other industries as well such as media, for instance, To have the best search and discovery experiences on their websites so that they can provide a consumer grade search for all of their users. And the goal ultimately is to develop conversion rates. So between people that visit your website and people that end up buying on your website. Uh, And so it's a 750 uh, employee company. And my role at Algoya is that I'm the director of sales and uh, sales development. So I lead a team of. 30 people uh, that's spread out across EMEA and Asia. Uh, And uh, yeah, so uh, we are in charge of developing the pipeline for the company.
1: Amazing. And can you perhaps tell us a little bit more about this international scope? So you mentioned the big regions, but can you maybe name a few countries? Just give us like a few numbers so that we can put some context behind it.
0: Yeah, sure. So first of all, my team is uh, split up between two different roles. We have the SDRs, the sales development team, Uh, they take care of inbound uh, leads. So anyone that shows interest and that comes through our marketing and that uh, requires to hear more about us. And then we have another part of my team, which is the BDR team that do the outbound part. Uh, And uh, so I have three managers that cover those different different roles. And uh, then we have SDRs and BDRs. And they are uh, covering EMEA and Asia. So the way we are split up is um, we have what we consider North Europe, which is UK and Ireland, the Nordics, Benelux, for instance. Uh, And then we have Southern Europe, which is um, uh, Italy, Spain, France, Greece, Greece. Uh, Middle East as well, uh, so MENA. And then we are starting as well, for the last few years, we've started uh, a team as well in Asia. So we have one of our team members that's in Singapore, and we are developing also in other countries such as Australia and um, Latin America. But those territories are covered by the equivalent team to mine that's based in the US.
1: Right. Thanks so much for this background information. I think it really helps better uh, understand like what's the scope of uh, Algolia. perhaps one question that I have because you've been working on so many geography. How do you actually choose which country you should focus on? And how do you set up the right team basically to work on there? Uh, It's a pretty tricky
0: question. The way we choose the territory that we go after. So first Algoya is, we address a, a developer community and, um, uh, the first thing to know about about Algoya as a company is that we were founded by two French uh, guys, but we are very American in our DNA or very international, I want to say, in our DNA. Uh, the, the two founders uh, very quickly went to uh, relocate the headquarters of the company to the US when they founded it because they uh, entered Y Combinator, which is a, a, an accelerator, accelerator. Uh, and, um, and from there, they also decided that the whole company would function in English and that we would hire talents from everywhere. So we don't really identify as a very geographically based company, right? So we've always had employees everywhere in the world. And, uh, we very early had like six offices located across the world. Uh, so we function as such. And so therefore it was pretty easy for us to start acquiring customers from any location. Uh, We very quickly had uh, a lot of customers that were based in the US, but also in other countries that have a lot of developers and that are interested in in technology. We very quickly developed uh, organically actually in countries such as the Netherlands, UK, Israel, which have very strong developer communities and are very uh, forward thinking in the way they use technology. And so the, the first thing we looked at is what is our footprint a uh, natural, organic footprint in the different countries that we work on. Uh, there were some obvious choices, right? Uh, obviously, France, because we have such a big team there, and we know the territory so well, and it was pretty easy for us to um, hire uh, some great salespeople there. Uh, the U.S. as well, which is obviously the biggest market uh, in terms of app development, technology, etc. Uh, but then the next part, you know, for the other countries that were maybe less obvious, Uh, we really looked at it as a a matrix. And within that matrix, uh, we looked at things such as what is the total addressable market? So our market, our primary market is e-commerce companies, right? So we first look at how mature in terms of e-commerce is a specific country, right? Uh, But anyone that listens to this podcast and, and is wondering what, what should I look at to choose the countries I want to develop? There, you need to pick a maturity indicator of the market, for sure. We looked at things such as uh, the top dev index, which is how many developers uh, are exist in a population. Uh, so over 1 million people, how many are developers, right? Which will tell you the maturity of the country in terms of the developers. Then we will also look at things such as barriers to entry. And I, I feel like that's probably the part where it's half, a, half an art and half a science uh, between you know, understanding how difficult will it be for you to enter a specific territory. And then there's so many things you need to consider, language, time difference, ways of doing business, your ability to hire people that have done that before, have developed, uh, you know opened countries before in other companies, Local competition, etc.
1: Quick question on that: Who is responsible for that to assess the barrier? Is it your marketing team? You know that works together with uh, you and, and and some other people internally. Uh,
0: no, we have a business operations team that's done that background work. Okay. Um, so yeah, they're they first line in develop or like choosing or helping our board decide where to invest uh, to try and develop new territories.
1: Okay. And so you said, uh, as you mentioned, right, that you have like a specific criteria that you use to uh, be able to choose. Because as you said, like you can't just go all in, right, and, and just go everywhere at the same time. So from there, when you get, I would say, like that uh, specific list of countries, then how do you go about it? Like, how do you set up the team and how do you decide, uh, oh, should I have like one BDR, one AE? Like, what's the what's the thought process behind it?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much of a case-by-case case, um, situation. And I feel like one of the mistakes we made when we started developing Algolia for specific countries, right, was to think that one size fits all. Uh, and actually, it's not at all the case. Even in very homogeneous territories such as Europe, you will have a lot of local differences. And so if you look at it case-by-case, case, I would actually put, those territories in three main buckets uh, based on uh, on how hard it is to penetrate a specific territory. So the first bucket, like the lowest barrier to entry, we could look at countries such as Belgium or Canada, right? It's the same language as France or the U S where we already have team members uh, that speak the local language. The cultural differences are minor uh, on how to do the business and how to, how to acquire new customers. There's no time difference either um, uh, between you and the territory. So really these territories, Belgium or Canada, you could assign them to an account executive that you already have on the team. So those are super easy. Then you have territories such as Germany. It's funny because I was was talking with our recruitment team yesterday about how hard it was to build the German team. (laughs) Uh, Germany might seem like it's a country with low barriers to entry, if you're coming from a French perspective or a US-based perspective, uh, because it's a European country, it's the same uh, currency, it's a mature market. But actually, for us, it took us, I want to say like three attempts. Uh, and when I say an attempt, it's over probably a couple years years uh, to, to penetrate uh, Germany uh, significantly. So, for instance, at first we started uh, by hiring two uh, uh, account executives that had worked on DACH before. We also hired a Swiss PDR that, she, like she was based in Paris, but she wasn't a native German speaker, right? So we figured that she would be able to start some business already with her uh, English skills, French skills, and a little the little bit of the German that she knew. Uh, but actually, it proved to be pretty hard uh, to, to get started that way, partially because uh, a, a, a large chunk of the team had, had worked on Germany but had never opened Germany, right? So they were used to having already a well-oiled oiled marketing engine, uh, pieces of content, like marketing content that was already uh, translated, and all of this did not exist with Algoya yet, right? So we had to go back to the drawing board and then... We started learning more and documenting ourselves and doing more like interviews with companies that had opened Germany before we started hiring people that had opened Germany for uh, other companies. And so what we found out was that Germany does business a very different way from the way France or the U.S. does their business. They're very, very much partner driven, right? You will do very little direct business with companies in Germany. And even more so, those partners are not those huge, you know, ISV companies that, you know, in France or in the US. A lot of the partners that you will work with in Germany are local boutique consulting companies or web agencies. Uh, And so you need to have a local approach. You can't even look at Germany as one single country. You need to look at Germany for each lender uh, because every lender will have the land will have a different approach to their business. Um, Another thing that we uh, noticed or another approach that we took was that we realized that we needed to do a lot of investment in field marketing, uh, meaning we needed to be present in a lot of local events. Mm -hmm. Because Germany is a country where a lot of the business is done through trust and through person-to-person relationships. Uh, And it often takes a lot of, you know, meeting in person, lunches, meetings, before you even start discussing business. Uh, And so we started off by doing small investments in uh, field marketing, hoping that, you know, the small investments will draw small returns and then we would grow progressively. But actually that didn't work either. And so we understood that we had to go big and be very present in our industry uh, specific events in the different locations in Germany where it made sense. And so, so now we invest much more in DACH specifically. And when I say DACH, I mean uh, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And now we have a full-blown team with account executives, solution engineers, BDRs, and partner managers that only work on the DACH territory. And that seems to be the recipe that works. So you need to over-invest in a territory like Germany Wow. Uh, which would tend to say that, yeah, the barrier to entry seems low, but actually is much higher than you would expect.
1: Definitely. So you mean that you hired the, those four kind of profiles quite at the start, you know, with having very few clients, you didn't have just one or two people. You said, okay, let's go with four people because we need those four profiles.
0: That, yeah, that's right. That's right. You, you can start small, but the return is not going to be proportional. You have to... If you want to go into enter Germany, you have to go big straight away.
1: Okay. Very, very interesting. Cause I think we've heard like, uh, for instance, at Witco right now, we are also working on the German market. And for sure, what I fully agree on with you is that there has to be people speaking German, like proper German. They have to be on the ground. And we are also realizing that it is, you know, like a very partner led kind of a market, a little bit like the UK as well, which you really need to be known, you know, by the networks and, and, and the people who will get you to the front doors, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we're seeing the same thing in Japan. Japan is a whole different ball game. Uh, I mean, opening Japan—that's our latest project in terms of international development. So for Japan, we knew that the barrier to entry was extremely high. Right, there's no chance you're going to do any business in English unless you want to only work with those very international companies, such as Nintendo, Sony, or you know, Uniqlo. And still, Uniqlo is still. a You know, they're very Japanese in their way, the way they do business. So we had some organic footprint with those companies that were already very international, but you will never enter the second level of companies in in Japan if you don't have a fully Japanese staff. And we knew that from the bit, from the get go. Another thing that's interesting in Japan is the way they build websites is very different from the way it's done in Europe or in, in Europe and US, I'm gonna put them
1: together here. How different, yeah.
0: Yeah, so in Europe and US, if you go on an e-commerce website, you go on amazon.com for instance, what you expect is a very clean interface, something that's you know, very intuitive, very user-friendly in, from our point of view, right? In Japan, um, they if you look at a Japanese e-commerce website, their homepage is full. Of information, they'll show you your their catalog from the very first page. They'll show you all the category categories of products that they have, right? Mm. And so it looks very cluttered to a, an occidental eye. Uh, and so getting them to care about what we sell, which is search and discovery, right? We we sell a very intuitive search bar that is gonna kind of anticipate. The what the person's looking for, right? So we use things such as personalization and AI so that when we have a repeat visitor that goes on a website, they don't even need to type. They already only see the things that we know they're going to be interested in. And so those things are way less valuable to a customer that's Japanese because they're like, well, my homepage already lays out all of my products uh, on the homepage, right? So that is even a cultural difference. Oh
1: my God, yeah. Uh, for our customers,
0: right? Yeah. And so that was another barrier to entry. And then you have, obviously, the fact that it's so remote from any, low, uh, any office that we have. Uh, we didn't have any teams on the ground in Japan, so that it's, it's very hard to do business in Japan from the U.S. or from Europe. And so what we did is we started by hiring a solution engineer that already had opened um, uh, the Jap- Japanese territory for another U.S.-based company. Okay. And he had to be very um, open to doing a lot of different things, right? So he does pre-sales, post-sales, he speaks at events, right? You need to have one person that's going to be able to do everything and that's going to enjoy doing all of that. And that person uh, is gold, right? He speaks uh, English as well as Japanese, which is not a given, right? Um, And so he helped us have an initial footprint in the territory then we hired a japan japan based account executive uh, and he started to close a few deals but actually we quickly understood that we would go nowhere without a very strong partner and even i would say we are now working on having a reseller in japan okay. meaning we won't we potentially don't even sell directly we give a license to a company in japan to sell algoya the japanese way right so they'll also do marketing. They'll also do education or like a training on our product and things like that.
1: And qu- quick question: Like, how did you find the you know like the solution engineer and then the the Japanese AE? Did you go through a, a specific uh, hiring uh, organization or you know uh, like to like to help you out?
0: So I'm I'm not sure about how we hired the solution the solution engineer, but what I can tell you is that we. We have two ways of hiring uh, in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's through um, direct approach. So the hiring manager would reach out to people through LinkedIn. uh, And the recruiter would do that too. And then we also, it's one of the territories where we heavily invest in uh, recruitment agencies. We have a super solid recruitment team, but even that recruitment team will need the support of agencies on the ground mm-hmm. in order to hire people in Japan.
1: Okay, very interesting. Okay, and I'm guessing um, in the search, you know, right now because you just said uh, Japan, you need a strong partner or a strong reseller. Um, who's taking care of that then uh, internally? Is it the Japanese team over there? You know, is it like someone from the from the French team? Uh, because it must be uh, hard, you know, to also like find the first one. That's that's also the hardest to get. I think, in terms of partners?
0: <laughs> you you need someone that's opened the territory before mm-hmm. and that will have the contacts on the ground, right? Okay. If you start off with someone that's never been on your market, I think it's probably going to take triple the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really only starts with the hiring. And I want to say that for every single territory that we open, really. It's, it's always going to be based on how experienced the first person you have is. On that territory, so yes, you have to invest heavily as well in finding the right person and not settle for someone that's kind of halfway what you need, right? Uh, And yeah, there there's no way around it. You have to spend a a lot of money in hiring the first (laughs) right person that's done it before and that will put you in front of the right future partners or the right future people that's um, that's going to resell Algoia for you in that territory. Uh, But I believe that we are currently working on um, having our Japanese reseller Uh and it's probably conversations that have been going on for like a year or something.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even surprised because these things take a lot of time, but once it's done, you can just exponentially increase uh, the amount of business you can do somewhere. So, uh, but I do agree with you. I think Mm -hmm. networking, especially in some specific countries, it helps a lot at the beginning to open doors much faster and avoid, as you said, like taking triple the time that you actually need to start doing business there. Yeah. Great. And actually, you mentioned something very interesting uh, that the team in Japan is fully remote. And I'm guessing also part of the team that you manage that directly is remote. Uh, what's the impact for you of of remote work in the way you manage your team, if we change a little bit the topic?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because at Algoya we really transitioned uh, from having a fully A team that's fully located in the office, same office as me, to slowly opening roles in the UK first. And then we started hiring in other locations. Uh, And now, uh, I mean, COVID COVID helping, uh, we have a team that's partially in Paris, but it's the minority. Uh, And we have, right now I have people that are in Paris, London, Dublin, uh, Singapore, Mm -hmm and uh, and then we have a few people that are remote, uh, because obviously our number one criteria, and that's something we understood now, is we we shouldn't hire people for their location. We should hire people for their language skills and the the quality of what they bring us uh, during the interview process, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now, uh, if I want to open the Italian market, so we have a, a you know a great Italian BDR, and I don't care where she lo- she's located. What I care about is that she is, uh, speaking native Italian, uh, and that she knows the market, and that she very quickly knows which you know companies she can target within the territory. Uh, and um, so, the transition to remote management was very interesting. Uh, I guess the few changes that I made uh, as we transitioned to that is number one, I'm uh, I've done a lot of work on internal uh, team communication. Mm-hmm. So we, I, I insist on having regular FaceTime with my team. So we have morning huddles three times a week on Mondays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. The whole team gets together for 20 minutes and we just discuss the news that's going on, right? Uh, projects, uh, that are happening, success stories, like something that worked for one BDR and they managed to get an opportunity. Um, so yeah, having those regular check-ins, I also, speak to each of my team members uh, at least once a month. And then obviously the direct managers that I have on my team speak to their team members, if not several times a week, at least one time a week they have an appointment. And it's extremely important to never, ever skip those meetings, even if you feel that there's there's not much to discuss or whatever. Having this FaceTime and this appointment with your team member is even more important than if you are in an office, right? Mm. Because you need to have very like uh, dedicated time with each team member, be it just to discuss the, the weather, you know, or like how the person's doing. Um, and that's actually the second thing I learned uh, by mis- by making the mistake is you need to also save time for the small talk. I'm I'm not a big small talk person. Like I tend to go straight to business. And actually that doesn't work in the remote management system. You need to set up time where people can just speak their heart and not just be very focused on, on the business, because how else are you going to learn how to know the person you manage? So that, that was also a big learning for me is that at some point, someone told me on my team is like, Aleda can you, you know, just set five minutes aside to just talk about our lives. And I'm like, really, why does that matter? And actually I <laughs> ended. I ended up understanding that it does matter. It really is important uh, and uh and it is important to me too so um so i I made a conscious effort of setting aside some time to just talk about anything and then the last thing I'll say is, um obviously, when people are on zoom in front of their laptops their their attention span is shorter than if you're in a physical room, right? I think we all we've all been working remotely for the last two years, and we all can say that. It's so much easier to be multitasking on Slack or whatever uh, during a meeting. And so w- when you are remote, I mean. And so you you, as a manager and as a trainer, and what depending on what the meeting is about, you need to be conscious of that, right? So obviously, you need to set some ground rules on like when we are in a meeting, you shut down Slack, you shut down your email, you should be fully focused. But still, the format of the way you do your meetings needs to be adapted. So it needs to be much more collaborative. Uh, it needs to be shorter, right? I've heard of uh, people on, in other companies that told me they just transposed all of our two hours meetings into two hour Zoom calls. And I'm like, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't have Zoom meetings that go over you know, 45 minutes to an hour. It's impossible. You will, you'll lose people. And then finally you need to record everything and send summaries after so it you know it takes more time in terms of communication but it's it's a very important effort that you need to set up. You need to have agendas for every single meeting. And after the meeting, you need to send the recording and send a summary and an action plan of what needs to happen.
1: I honestly 100% agree with you, especially on the one where you have you know, to adapt your Zoom calls. In my previous experience yes. working with Flix as a head of sales, we tried to do something different a little bit like Amazon uh, did. Uh, so you send basically like a brief on what the meeting is going to be about, especially if it includes several people. You set some time mm-hmm. at the beginning of the meeting where everyone for 10 minutes actually read the document and then we only make it like a 10 to 15 minutes meeting where where, where we take Q&A so that you make sure that it's you know uh, active listening because people are just interacting so I 100% agree with you like it needs some adaptation otherwise you just lose people for sure yeah all right so if I just understand it well so obviously you said that Internal team communication matter a lot. So you have like morning huddles like three times a week. You always have to save some time for the small talks. It is important, especially on a remote setting. Try to make those Zoom calls much more collaborative. And finally, to record everything so that people who either were not, I guess, like paying attention to it or just not present can have access to it afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And what I'm what I'm wondering is when you talk about obviously managing different BDrs in different locations with very different challenges and speeds uh, in the way I guess we see you know the market opening. I, I want to talk a little bit about performance and perhaps in terms of indicators. Is there any difference in the way you set up? performance indicators at the beginning for each of your BDR, knowing that there are a difference in, in the market? Like how, how do you make it work basically? Or do you adapt it, you know, as you see things progressing? How does that work for you today to set up those indicators? So the
0: the, the basic principle on which I work is not equal, but fair. So each BDR's performance needs to be looked at individually uh, because each individual BDR will have challenges around territories, right? The maturity of the market as as I mentioned the barriers to entry, etc. You will also have differences based on the the situation of the account executives that they're working with. Some, you know, are you working with an account executive that's been selling your product for the last 2 years and know the whole product inside out or are you working with a brand new AE that's ne- that hasn't been here for long very long and, you know, still needs to build their muscle of selling your product. So, you know, everybody needs to be looked at individually, but underperformance and and really KPIs should be the same for everybody. You can then kind of give some space for underperformance if you want to, if you have reasonable or like good reasons why, but those should be very transparent and very much set at the very beginning. So the way I go about it is that when I hire someone on my team, people know what their performance indicators are, and they also know what underperformance means for when you're on my team, right? So when you distribute someone's comp plan, which is really what your performance is going to be assessed on and paid on, that's also the time where you can distribute the information about what underperformance is. And then, you know, they will know things such as how long, how many months can they miss miss their target before there's going to be an action taken. What will be the action that will happen? So you know pre-pip, pip, and when I say pip, I mean uh, performance uh, improvement plan. And there should never be any surprises. People should know where they stand uh, every step of the way. Um, and then underperformance is defined at as a glo- at a global team level. It's not individual, and it's presented for everybody when they just when they get started at Algolia, okay? that's the first thing. Then we want to make sure that BDRs or your team members in general are evaluated on things they can control. So for instance, on our team, the way they are compensated is how many opportunities, how many qualified opportunities do they provide to the sales team. And we decided to move away of looking at pipeline value, right? So we, we don't pay them on the amount of pipeline that they bring in on a specific month because they are not in control of the size of an opportunity, right? What they are in control of is who are the people they reach out to or like which companies, first of all, are they within our ideal customer profile, which people they will reach out to within those companies, what they'll tell them to get them to be interested in having a call and actually having the discovery call with the account executive and the account executive agreeing That there's an opportunity for us to sell Algoia to that company. And so those things are in their their control, but the value of the op is not. So we decided to remove the metric of pipeline and to solely focus on what they can control. And that the same way their performance or their, their compensation is based on what they can control, their underperformance is also based on what they can control. So we will never or we will seldom blame someone because they haven't generated enough qualified opportunities, if they can show us that they've, had, they've targeted the right people, the right companies, they've sent qualitative messaging, and uh, they've, they've done the amount of activity that we expect from them. And we have a big principle on the team, which is trust the process, surrender to the outcomes. And so if the people on my team do those four things, right, they target the right companies, the right people, they have the right messaging, and they have the right activity, all four things that are under that control, they will actually perform. They will hit their targets. So th- this way, you have a sort of virtuous circle where the BDR feels that they are in control of their destiny. They are not uh, subject to, uh, you know, an account executive that decides to whether or not you know size an opportunity yeah. at the value that they think they should. And and yeah, underperformance needs to be something that they can control. Otherwise, you're creating an an environment that might be considered as unfair.
1: Okay, so if I understand correctly, so uh, you're always, you know, basing, I would say like your main metric is really the number of qualified opportunities that's generated. Does that mean that even yes. at the very early stages, when from the get-go, when you really just start to open a country, so you you literally decided to move away from, for instance, what I see a lot uh, in different companies, the number of meeting booked, you know, because they were saying, okay, it's the very beginning, so we, we are not sure if we're going to generate qualified opportunities but you decided no like it's going to be that metrics for everyone
0: um so it depends on your business and i agree it depends on the maturity of your business we actually started at algoya i want to say like five years ago with meetings books okay because indeed we didn't really know yet who our icp was going to be yeah we didn't really we didn't understand our market yet and so in that in that case when you're so early in your business it does make sense to look at meetings um booked and executed happened, mm, right? Yeah. Um, uh, because what you want is for your sales team to be have as much face time in front of prospects as possible and to learn from having conversations with your potential prospects, right? But as we matured the business and as we understood much better who our target audience was going to be, we've decided to go towards uh, qualified opportunities. Um, and also because in a very pragmatic way, uh, it's so expensive. Your your account executives are the most expensive spend that you will have in your business. And so you want to make sure that the, the qualification steps, the very early conversations, you have them done by the people that are a bit more junior on your team and so a little less expensive. And so that the time that your sales team has in front of your prospects is as valuable as possible. But you can only afford to do that once you understand your territory, once you understand your addressable market, and once you have kind of tasted the waters on how to position your product, how to sell your product.
1: That's very interesting. And uh, before like, moving to like, the last section of this uh, interview, I just have like a last question. Uh, do you find that across all the countries that you've been working on so far, the ICP, ideal customer profile, is always the same? So
0: we have a very obvious um, company profile that we know uh, is our best ICP, uh-huh. right? Uh, which is, we, we ha- it's e-commerce companies that have over 100,000 monthly traffic. Okay. Um, so that's our ideal customer profile. So it's pretty straightforward. Then we have a few other profiles of companies. So we have companies like media companies, uh, we're also developing uh, B two B e commerce, right? The, the the initial ICP that we were going with was B two C uh, um, e commerce companies, uh-huh. so companies that were selling online to you and I, uh-huh. right? But actually, there's a the market of B two B selling is growing massively. So, for instance, we just closed up a pretty big deal with a company uh, that sells beverages uh to um to uh, groceries right mm-hmm. and supermarkets etc and they they're building an online e-commerce store that's only for resellers of their products okay. so that's what we consider b2b commerce okay so the icp is roughly the same but then the the way the companies are organized is different so it's more like who are you going to be targeting okay. within those com- within those companies that's going to be different And how you're going to speak to them as well is going to be different. What you're going to say to attract them is going to be different. Uh, But no, the ICP company, at the company level stays the same.
1: Okay, perfect. All right. Well, very interesting. And I know you've been talking about already like some mistakes that you had, but uh, we have like this section that's called like the oops, my bad time. Whoops, my bad which is uh, a time where the invitee shares a mistake or a setback that has occurred during the country openings mission. So perhaps uh, if you have another, uh, another uh, story to share with us, uh, that could be great for our listeners. Yeah,
0: for sure. So I I think two years in my role at Algolia, uh, we decided to set up a pod system for the BDRs. I'm going to explain what it is. So We had, uh, our sales team was organized between North EMEA and South EMEA, right? And um, at that time, we thought it was too big of an effort to hire language-specific BDRs. Like, we were too small to start hiring people that spoke Italians, people that spoke German, people that spoke specifically French, and that would only address those territories. And so what we did is we we tried to build a pod of like a group of say five BDRs that would work with maybe 10 account executives and they would, it would be open field for them to go and um, reach out to any account in those territories. So we, we only had a rule of like, if one of your fellow BDRs had reached out to that same company within the last 30 days, you were not allowed to reach out to them. But as soon as those 30 days were passed or maybe 90 days, I can't remember, but as soon as those 90 days are passed, Uh, you're allowed to reach out to them. So it was very much of an open field. And then actually, I now think it was a mistake for quite a few reasons. Um, The first reason is it meant that each of our prospects would potentially speak to five different BDRs. Uh, And, you know, they would have no idea of who to reach out to if they wanted to get back to us, because they would have had John and then Thomas and then Michael (laughs) that would have reached out to them and, you know, like... In terms of you, in terms of customer experience, it was definitely not great. Second thing is you would have people not addressing prospects in their local language, which we know has an impact on conversion rate, especially in territories such as France, Italy, Spain, uh, um, Germany, obviously, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? So you would have. Italian people trying to reach out to German companies in English, (laughs) which is kind of a nonsense. (laughs) And then the third thing is it was quite negative for the team spirit. Uh, There was quite a bit of, we call it sharking, which is, you know, you have those Salesforce reports, Checking the days until which you will be allowed to reach out to that person, and then suddenly you know you you go and and, and take that account from that uh, from your team members, and it would generate a very, you know, not a very collaborative uh, team spirit. And so, after I think we tried this for a, one fiscal year, uh-huh. and then we decided to stop it for those different reasons, and to really just assign a territory and uh, an account executive or a pair of account executive. Uh, to the uh, BDRs and uh, moving away from that system had an actually unexpected benefit, which was that we saw AEs and BDRs collaborate much more than we did in the past. We thought that there was only little collaboration between BDRs and AEs uh, back then. And I think that having that one year of pod system meant that the account executives realized how important it was to be able to work with one specific BDRs and strategize with that BDR on the longer term than just 90 days. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was my my big learning. My big mistake is like, you know, free for all is not necessarily a right strategy.
1: It's, it's not necessarily right, but they learned the, the perks, you know, of having a great BDR working with them. So I guess <laughs> that was also a learning for them. You only know what you lose until you lose it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I 100% agree with you. But thank you so much, Aleta, for all your insights today. It was very interesting to understand like how you deal with all the different geography, how you set up your team and manage performance. I hope everyone enjoyed it. But uh, on my side, I really did. So thank you so much. And I guess I'll tell you until next time then. Thank you, Tiffen. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon.